welcome everybody. Um, my name is Andrew Eaton-Lewis and I am uh, Arts Programme Officer uh, for the Mental Health Foundation. Um, uh, this is the second um, in a series of uh, kind of public discussion events and workshops that we're running under the banner of the Mental Health Arts Network. Um, the idea being to bring together people with an interest in mental health and the arts uh, to share knowledge and experience and sometimes resources. Um, uh, the Mental Health Arts Network is supported by the Bering Foundation. Um, the subject uh, we want to explore today is um, how we use the arts uh, to explore mental health um, while also safeguarding the mental health of artists and audiences. Um, one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this subject is that uh, the past few years have seen a huge increase in the number of artistic projects um, from theater and film to comedy to visual art uh, uh, that explicitly address mental health. Um, sometimes these projects involve the artists uh, sharing their own quite difficult experiences. Uh, sometimes they in, uh, involve inviting or uh, asking other people to do so. And with that, um, there are obviously some responsibilities, there are some safeguarding issues, and there is obviously the issue of self-care for uh, the people making uh, the projects. Um, I'm delighted to have some really interesting um, experienced people to share um, their experiences and their thoughts on this subject. And I'll come to each of them in turn. Um, but I'm just going to quickly introduce all of them. Uh, Tamsin Griffiths and Paul Whitaker work together as four in four. Um, uh, they're based in Cardiff um, and uh, they describe themselves as cross-disciplinary artists with a mental health diagnosis who create participatory interactive projects that blur the boundaries of art forms and challenge perceptions about mental health. Um, uh, we first met Tamsin and Paul uh, through their work with a, uh, a mental health arts festival in Wales uh, called Green Ribbon, uh, which started up a couple of years ago and is doing kind of very similar things to what the Scottish Mental Health Arts Festival is uh, doing in, in Scotland. It's a really, really interesting annual programme and I'd encourage you to check it out. Uh, Juliet Burton, welcome. Um, uh, Juliet is a comedian um, and uh, writer and, uh, and, and uh, actress. She's described herself as, as, as a docu-comedian, which I, a description I quite like, um, who has talked um, very candidly about her own mental health uh, experiences in her shows for, 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 for many years now. Um, Juliet is an ambassador for the mental health charity Rethink Mental Illness, uh, and she works closely with Mind and Beat and Time to Change. Uh, uh, Vicky Doig. Good morning, uh, good afternoon rather, Vicky. Um, uh, Vicky was until recently um, Learning and Engagement Manager for Youth Theatre Arts Scotland, uh, where she mentored young people, uh, programmed mental health workshops and worked to support a culture of care across the youth theatre sector. Um, she's also recently became a member of our Mental Health Arts Network working group. And finally, uh, Rebecca Day, welcome Rebecca. Um, Rebecca is a psychotherapist, um, a clinical supervisor, and also uh, a founder of the organization Film in Mind. Um, Film in Mind um, uh, advocates for better mental health in the film industry and provides bespoke therapeutic services for the filmmaking community. Um, thank you all so much for being with us today. Um, Tamsin and Paul, I'm going to start with you because um, you work across various different art forms, um, all kind of working with, with mental health. I thought your perspective would be really interesting. Um, can you give me some examples of, of the kind of work that you do 
and also the considerations involved in making that work? Yes, we can. Uh, <laughs> um, so um, just to set up kind of how the project works and then we'll go give you some examples. So uh, both Tam and me are artists that with a mental health diagnosis who found each other through the arts and then connected through our mental health. Um, and we formed a partnership, an informal partnership based on, let's just go into a room and see what we can do. And we made work and explored for ourselves. Um, it was really nice having that freedom. We wanted to, you know, working in the arts, we wanted to look at a different way of working that suited our approach, our thoughts, our lived experience. Um, and we kind of just kept going into rooms, doing stuff. And, and after a while, we showed it to people and it got really good responses. So then it kind of was the beginning of our practice. Um, so we do make work for ourselves as professional artists. Um, but we also work within healthcare settings uh, using creativity um, with um, with service users and staff. And I'll pass over to Tam to talk, you know, a bit about that, if that's okay, Tam. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, yeah, so as Paul said, a lot of the work that we started doing was um, very, uh, very much incidental. Um, we didn't really know what we were doing. <laughs> uh, we, I'm happy to admit that. But um, yes, and then um, it kind of sort of, as Paul said, got a really good response and it, it ended up being something that people were um, telling us what we were doing. Um, and that was really useful, actually, because it gave us a language to kind of um, to kind of start explaining to other people that um, the work that we create is um, kind of well, well, it's about people's lived experiences. So we have done several different things and to put into context, we work across multiple different art forms with many different hats on. So um, one of the things that we've did fairly recently before uh, the old lockdown came in is um, we took a, a play about around mental health. So uh, it was actually an autobiographical play that Paul wrote around um, receiving a diagnosis of bipolar at the age of 23. And then how that, you know, how that challenged his identity and sort of looking back on his life, kind of going or reflecting back on his life about the reasons why things happened or, you know, um, and um, and whether actually he ended up taking uh, the medication. And that was really useful. Um, uh, that was a really useful um, tour because not only were we, um, the Arts Council gave us a year lead up to that um, because one of the things that me and Paul always do is we don't just look at the art, we, we, the art has always been the incidental bit with us and they kind of keep reminding us that you know what is the art remember the art but we actually looked at how do we um really support audiences how do we support our cast mental health how do we work with the theatres and all of the venues um so that they can a support the staff's uh, mental health and well-being but also the audiences coming in and the, and the whole um the whole cast as well so we really kind of did a whole year builder for that and we called it the wraparound work um, and because we were also targeting uh, third sector um, audiences and, and people with lived experience to really come in and, and, and see the play but also then um, do these sort of post-show conversations and things like that to kind of um, have that kind of open honest conversation about mental health and challenge some of the, the stigmas um, but also allow people to just have a voice in a room um, where it wasn't just kind of like a in a hierarchical setting of a clinician working with uh, talking to somebody with their lived experience 
Um, so yeah, so that was kind of uh, one of the things we did, but we also do work for the NHS as well. And we, in various different forms. So we don't just work within the mental health sector with that. We kind of work with um, lots of different groups, but it always ends up coming back to sort of like people's emotional health and well-being, and people as people, um, as opposed to people as their diagnoses. I've definitely waffled a bit there. <laughs> um, uh, thank you, Tamsin. Um, I want to come back to that play that you talked about because when we spoke the other day, um, I, I, you talked about the staging of it and 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 um, how uh, how you staged the play and 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 what you said to the people who worked in the venue and I thought that was just a really good example of the kind of considerations um, uh, in your work. I wonder if you could talk me through that a little. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, so what the first thing to say is so we were very fortunate uh, because we got a very small grant from the Arts Council of Wales the first time to even say, is this a play? Is this something people want to see? Is this something that people can can you turn it into a public performance? Um, what it, what would its value be? And they gave us money and a lot of faith to just go in a room with the understanding that we were going to not just as practitioners, but we were going to direct it as people with lived experience. I mean, not only was it my story, it was autobiographical. We had to guard against it becoming, you know, too introspective or too personal. Had to broaden its its appeal to people. Um, but we kind of said, if we sat in the audience, as we have done, as people with lived experience, into any form of art form that's dealt with mental health, how uncomfortable we felt? Why have we felt uncomfortable? Have we felt supported? And we focused on that. And they were always at the forefront of every creative decision. Um, and... So then what we did is we then took it further beyond the performance. We said, let's imagine what's the experience of buying a ticket? What's the experience of coming to a venue? How do you then you know, negotiate that and navigate that venue? How do you get into the space? Where do you want to sit? You know, a good example is talking to people. And, and quite often, you know, in a, maybe in a house that's you know, in a smaller studio, um, You'll book a seat and you might pick an ideal seat for you. It could be in the aisle, it could be at the back. And then an usher will suddenly come along and go, could you just move along, please, so we can get this family in? And not a lot of us have got the courage to kind of stand up for ourselves in those moments. So it was important for us to relay that learning to the front of house staff. So we met with marketing and marketing makes all the considerations there. We met with the ticket office. Uh, we met with uh, front of house staff. But we also then had to work with the company and explain to them their responsibility, not just to the performance, but to the audience and its and its safety. And they were really interesting conversations that we found only made the art form better than limited it, which is sometimes the scary thought. If you look at their access, what are you limiting? Um, it was a, Tam had a different experience, obviously, to me, because I was it was my story that we just kept... Um, <laughs> going over and over again um and then but having tam next to me not equally as an equal creative creative equally but as someone with lived experience who understood so when i couldn't i couldn't take it tam could support me but also at times just step in and let me walk away for a bit um i'm going to hand over to tam just for her experience to say that's the value i think sometimes of having both of us um and because initially, you know, before we became four and four, we were working together and, you know, um, we, that it was a choice that we made that some, you know, at the beginning, it was kind of like, well, it's important that we're both there because we knew that we could support each other's um, mental health and where one might need some time out, the other one could step up and vice versa. 
Um, but also it's about kind of ensuring that like the audiences um, were at the forefront of every decision that we made, as Paul mentioned. But it's, it's that idea of about going like, we need to keep this as authentic as possible because um, there's so many times that we've been sat there in that in those situations and, and felt not just uncomfortable but kind of um, you know angry at sometimes because you're just thinking that isn't a true representation. So we wanted to obviously make it entertaining. It's theatre, um, but keep that real true essence of the voice. Um, and then it was really important as well as Paul mentioned, like sometimes you couldn't make certain decisions, but there were times where you had to push him on them and know how far to push, but then know how to support at the same time. So, um, because it's the, like Paul has lived that life. It's some, there were, there were some moments in there. There were absolutely beautiful moments that you could really try and draw out, but just needing to have that external view on it, but equally going, does this stay true to the story? Is this still authentic? And how this, is this going to feel for the audience? So, you know, simple things like with the actors, where they may naturally turn to an audience and look somebody in the eye and try to make a connection. There were times where we could try and say, well, you can't do that potentially in this with this audience because you can make connections in different ways, but you can't, don't directly aim something at somebody for them because it might make them feel really uncomfortable, um, especially if they're there with an interest in the, in the subject matter because of either a lived experience, uh, personal lived experience or an indirect one through people that they know. Um, so that was massive consideration for us. But then it was almost like going, there are, you know, um, we, with the box office, we kind of decided uh, that people could um, almost self-declare as, as having anonymously as having um, what their access needs were. So there was like almost a process through the box office where everybody got the same um, information and same questionnaire almost through the booking process so that it, it wasn't like, oh, that person has to self-declare that they have um, uh, mental health challenges or access needs. Everybody got a chance to say it. Um, and then we got we gave the option of kind of allowing the audience to go in early as well. So I think it was up to half an hour before the performance started um, because we thought about it from the perspective of what's this person's journey from leaving their house all the way to arriving at the theatre? Their experience doesn't just start when they arrive. Actually, they, you know, they, they may get anxious about going on a bus or whether they have to get a taxi or a train or however it is, you know, they may get nervous about being late. Um, so, you know, we wanted to make it as kind of um, as easy for them as possible once they arrived in the theatre. They were also um, safe spaces and quiet spaces for people to go to if they wanted to. We didn't force them down their throats. They were just signposted and kind of made up. They were people were made aware once that when they booked their ticket that they'd be available. There was all we'd um, we got in touch with um, like I say charities and organisations in the third sector and also the Mental Health Foundation and National Centre for Mental Health. And they kind of gave us some like leaflets and information and we had a table for, for people to kind of access all that kind of stuff as well. Um, and we had that in, in um, bilingually so that when we went to places up in North Wales where maybe their first language was Welsh, um, they had like local information that was um, bespoke to their area. Um, and then we kind of also um, had conversations with the ushers as well. So who felt really quite nervous about potentially having uh, <laughs> mental people uh, coming into their um, building, you know, where they, they, 
they've kind of gone, we, we've never really opened our doors in this way before to knowing that actually we know there are big, large groups of people coming in with mental health challenges. Um, how do we talk to these people? You know, but having those open conversations in a way that it, it's not offensive, it's just, they just don't know, you know. So um, it's about saying like, actually, if somebody comes out and they're looking distressed, you know, you can ad address them in this way, or you could um, say, oh, there's a space here, or you could even say, you know, is there anything you 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 need um, without it being a big deal? And um, so, yeah, but we also then had a almost like a pathway for them if they needed to leave the space, the theatre space, is that if they wanted to go back in, there was a um, they could go back in without kind of going across the whole audience again. So that, you know, if they had that kind of anxiety over sort of um, disrupting the play that we could bring them in through the back. Um, and we worked with all of our seven theatres on that. Was it seven? Seven yeah. Thank you, Tamsin. I mean, I, I'd like to come back to some of your other work a bit a bit later because you've also worked in in, in film and but, but but live performance has kind of its particular its own kind of particular set of of, of considerations. Um, uh, Juliet, um, welcome. Um, I, I mean, it'd be quite nice to get you to maybe res respond to some of the, the things that Tamsin and Paul have been talking about a bit, a bit later, but um, if I could ask you to talk about your own work. I mean, you've been very open about your own mental health experiences in your work for a long time now as a, as a comedian. I mean, this is a very kind of broad question, but can you talk a bit about how that experience has been for you and, and, and some things you've kind of had to think about and process? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And it's wonderful to uh, to, to be here and not here because this is um, a living room in a random uh, flat that I of my friends, but to be with you guys virtually. Um, yeah. So uh, for anyone who doesn't know me, which uh, I've basically my career has been in mainly in comedy. Uh, I've been uh, named the Sunday Times culture pick and um, been given five stars by the Daily Mirror and Edinburgh Festivals magazine and um, uh, I've toured in the UK uh, Arts Council funded tours um, twice was in the middle of my second tour when the first lockdown hit. Um, I've toured in Australia, New Zealand and um, sold out at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival four years in a row. Um, and uh, I'm tempted to give you a little slice of my mental health history via the medium of comedy, um, because I will refer back to it um, from an artistic perspective. Um, so my mental health history is that uh, I was sectioned under the Mental Health Act when I was 17. So I spent my 18th birthday um, on a psychiatric ward, which as far as parties go, it's fairly exclusive, isn't it? Like if your name's not down, you're not coming in. And if your name is down, then you're not going out. Um, I have been, uh, I was sectioned when I was 17, but I was also diagnosed with 13 different mental health conditions. I've been in therapy for around 23 years. I was sectioned, as I mentioned, uh, and I've been a mental uh, patient, mental hospital patient, inpatient five times. I'm what psychiatrists might call a bit much. Um, and I have been performing on stage uh, for a number of years now, um, openly about my mental health conditions. So my first solo show, which mentioned it was in 2013. Uh, I will come back to the, um, the difference between then and now in a moment. But um, yeah, I, uh, I have discovered a lot of stigma from um, comedy often has some, some audiences that will quite openly slash drunkenly tell you 
uh, what they think afterwards and they'll give you opinions that are unsolicited and they'll ask questions. I prefer being asked questions, but I've had people come up to me and say, um, oh, you can't be ill, you don't look ill. Well, you don't look rude, but here we are. Uh, I've had people come up to me and say, oh, mental illnesses, it's just attention seeking. Um, no, mental illness is not attention seeking, but performing comedy definitely is. Uh, and I've had people say, do you blame your parents for your mental illnesses? Like, do you not blame my parents? I blame the Tories, which is a nickname I've given to my parents. Uh, and I've had people say to me, um, oh, you must be very brave. You're very brave talking openly about mental illness. And I think that fundamentally misunderstands the point because um, it's just a part of me. It's a part of my life. It's not, there's nothing to be scared of um, because if I want to be open about it, it's, it's, a part of who I am. So they might call it brave, I call it normal. My friends call it repetitive and my therapist calls it lucrative. Uh, so I won't tell you any more jokes, um, a couple will probably slip in, but um, my experience of performing comedy specifically um, on stage uh, regarding my mental health history um, has changed a lot over the years. So um, the first show that I ever um was open about my mental health history was in 2012 and that was because it was um 10 years to the uh the the month um in fact one particular performance was to the day that i was sectioned and um we myself and my my co-writer uh, wanted to raise money for a charity and we chose mind as a charity for that reason and so um on the 10 year anniversary of the day that I was sectioned, that was the first day that I said openly on stage, um, I was sectioned under the Mental Health Act and this is why we're raising money for MIND. And that day was the first day that someone came up to me after the show and said, thank you so much for saying that. I struggle with depression and it's so helpful to hear that, to see you um, being open about it um, and unashamed. And that kept happening again and again and that gave me the confidence and the strength to to be more and more open mm. on stage um with audiences and then subsequently um in the press and um and it and it built and it built and it grew and it grew um my first solo show in 2013 um even the way that i structured it was um it was a fun mm. Uh, docu-comedy so documentary mixed with comedy because I used to be a journalist um, it was true to life but it was a quest for me to try to find out um, what career was the right career for me and 40 minutes into the show that was when I revealed my um, my experience of being uh, sectioned for anorexia going from a size 4 to a size 20 due to binge eating disorder in six months um, my my body has expanded and contracted more times than the boundaries of the British Empire. And just like the British Empire, me and my body have a lot of shame and guilt we're still working through. Um, they Sometimes the comedy just slips in, and I'll come back to why that is in a second. Um, the the, the, next, the next solo show that I created was Arts Council funded with, with the R&D. Um, and we, uh, within that one, I was uh, very open within 10 minutes of the show about my mental health history. And um, I use multimedia as well to, um, because some people, I even had a guy in Australia say um, that when I, I was performing my first tour out there, very drunk chap, it's usually the drunks that are, are um, say the most interesting things, the most memorable moments. Um, he said that, um, 
oh by the way um i say drunks i mean um people who have struggles with alcohol as alcoholism uh, as well um but he uh he said i those those photographs on the multimedia could have been photoshopped and um i don't believe you that you went through that um I've had a lot of different challenges with people challenging me about their belief in my experience, my, the belief in what I'm telling them, the, the, the voice with which I'm speaking. Um, and the uh, going through those experiences, both with adults and with children, I've done lots of schools performances as well. Um, it's it was challenging and as a solo artist with no cast no crew um with a production team uh very like there will always be um it, not not there they're not there experiencing it with you they're based in an office um that might be supportive but they're not there every single day um it was an interesting experience because um it gradually built and built and caught momentum and uh there was a big thing that happened in 2015 with the beach body ready uh, campaign that i was caught in the middle of with the uh, social media aspect of it and feel free to google that if you want to with my name and you can see um how that kind of caught uh fire really um it just kept building and building and building and when the difference back then to now is back then it was I was nervous back in 2012 when I first said on stage that I was sectioned. I was terrified of the stigma, um, which then revealed itself eventually over the years. Um, the stigma that I'd encountered um, as a child um, when I'd gone through those experiences um, was still around. And uh, so that galvanized my energy to want to um, challenge that stigma and to do it through comedy, which breaks the breaks down barriers, increases understanding. You come in for the comedy, you don't realize that it's about mental health uh, and uh, or mental, we, we all have mental health, by the way, just like we all have physical health, but you don't realize it's about maybe some more extreme experiences of mental illness. Um, and you're already won over because you're laughing and a laughter is, is like a church, you know, if comedy is like a church for me that you're all united with this. Um, if you're laughing, you're, you're, it's a sign of recognition. You understand where somebody's coming from, or if you don't understand, then you're at least, it's, it's the slickest, quickest form of changing somebody's opinion is to give them, to set them up with a joke that then has a twist at the end. It's a, it's a, any joke, whether it's a one-liner or a longer narrative is a story uh, and it has a twist ending, has a surprise ending. Um, whether that's just a three, the rule of three, you know, set up, follow, follow up, follow through and, uh, and twist. That's the structure of any joke. And back when I first started even telling my friends about my mental health history, about having hallucinations when I was sectioned, uh, about um, being sectioned, about um, being in and out of hospital, about my depression, about the, the really the darkest stuff. If I could make them laugh, then it would reassure them that I was I was OK, that I was safe, that I don't want their pity. Um, and I transposed that into the shows, which I loved doing. But then there came this crux point where the awareness that was we were so aware we're so desperately aware now um we're too aware people are self-diagnosing left right and center and it's been commercialized and capitalized and there's the opportunistic phase now where there's a lot of um big businesses that are picking up on the hashtags not only of the hashtag body positivity hashtag mental health awareness hashtag this hashtag that 
it's the opportunistic commercialization and capitalization of um of lived experiences which then um unfortunately for artists especially solo artists um we can get caught up in a um a perpetuating uh, narrative of, of telling a narrative fit for public consumption so i hid behind my mental health history i hid behind those jokes i hid and from vulnerability from true vulnerability i was caught up in a narrative that distanced me from the feelings and that is a part of comedy as well telling a joke is a way of telling a story that has a a, a perfunctory um goal to make you laugh um it can very much mask the true feelings from yourself of that experience so me talking about my lived experience of uh, being sectioned i de i've dealt with some of that in therapy but not really viscerally um, and the pandemic gave me, I mean, the pandemic robbed me of my income. Uh, it robbed me, robbed me of all my income because I was fully sufficient on comedy alone and live entertainment. And um, there was not enough support. Um, I, uh, I had a huge uh, breakdown. My brain broke, um, which I will happily talk about openly, Andrew, because I can see that I need to probably wrap my, up my little section now. Um, but uh there's there's not enough um support for the deeper trauma so my my childhood trauma that i'm now dealing with in therapy i have been distancing myself and distancing myself through a number of different hiding places whether that's behind jokes or behind glittery outfits or behind a narrative fit for public consumption it distances me from the visceral memories the repressed memories i would love to talk more about that and maybe we have time to come back to it later on but i do want to allow other people to talk as well so that's a little bit from me thank you julia i mean you touched on so many important things there there's this idea isn't there that that if we talk about mental health if we share our experiences through art and, and, and or, 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 or comedy or, or whatever it is that can be a kind of healing experience, but it's, it, but it's complicated, isn't it? I mean, it, it can it can make you vulnerable. It can it, yeah, anyway. But hopefully, we can we, we can come back to that. Um, yeah, Vicky, I wanted to talk to you about your work with 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 young people, um, I mean, teenagers. I mean, you've been working with with people who are. Kind of, I guess at a very early stage in their lives of, 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 of processing their mental health experiences and, and, and talking, talking about it. Yeah, talk, talk a bit about that, that work you've done and the considerations involved in that. Yeah, great, thank you. Um, hello everybody, lovely to see you um, or not if you're on uh, camera off, which is totally fine. Um, that seems like an excellent segue actually from all the stuff you were just saying there, Andrew, into what I was thinking about talking about um, for my section. So um, for people who don't know me, which is probably everybody, um, my name is Vicky. I uh, have worked in and around the, the youth theatre and participatory arts sector um, for about 15 years. Um, and that's been, I suppose, as a director, as a producer, as a facilitator um, of youth theatre, and more recently um, working with learning and engagement management at Youth Theatre Arts Scotland, which is largely around programming year-round learning and engagement activity for youth theatre leaders and organisations that work with young people. So more recently, I haven't necessarily been working directly with the young people myself, but I've been in that kind of inception way, working with people who work with young people um, in that kind of, yeah, in a, a, meta way, a meta way. And I've been really thinking a lot recently about how to really embed a culture of care within the youth theatre sector, because as Andrew just mentioned there as well, it's really interesting working with young people. It's really interesting in these kind of creative spaces, which by definition, I suppose, bring people together in a community and in a space 
space that feels safe to divulge some quite personal information that maybe um, has come up about you as a young person. Um, youth theatre facilitators are really, really skilled at creating these safe spaces where young people can creatively use arts as a vehicle um, for discussing some of these things that kind of come up, all of these kind of issues that are present and relevant for young people in their lives, things that they're grappling with, like mental health, like sexuality, like personal identity, like the climate crisis, like racism, all of these massive topics that really are so prominent for young people in their lives today, youth theatre becomes a space where it's kind of safe to, to channel some of that. It's safe to talk about that. Um, but again, as you say, Andrew, that can make you kind of vulnerable, I suppose, to kind of talk about that um, in that kind of space and how you kind of go on that journey as the artist supporting the young people and as the young people kind of giving various opinions as well. So um, so I suppose just as a, as a bit of a, um, a definition for that, um, the way that we, when I was at Youth Theatre Art Scotland, and I still like to use this definition, the way that we sort of talk about youth theatre is not, sometimes people hear the word youth theatre and they go, oh yeah, jazz hands. Um, and it can be that, but we uh, we sort of talk about it more as um, an arts or, or an organizational group um, that, uh, that engages young people as active participants in the performing arts and where their participation is central to the motivation of the creative process. So I like to talk about it actually as a space where well-being and creativity collide uh, because it is that space where, where young people's ideas and experiences are the central to the motivation. So they're not being taught skills necessarily. They're not you know, in that kind of teacher-student hierarchy dynamic, it's very much artists and young people collaborating together as equals in that space. And it's their ideas, it's their experiences that are kind of the conduit and that are the catalyst, I suppose, for the creative work that gets made. So as I said before, youth theatre leaders are really skilled at facilitating and creating these safe spaces um, where they often end up sharing their, their vulnerability. And so, so by simply existing, youth theatres uh, often um, a sense of community is built and some quite personal and challenging conversations come up in the rehearsal room and that's before any work is even made. So that's kind of that's, you know, when as soon as you get young people in that space, that's the kind of dynamic that's set up. But given that youth theatre is this space that is youth-led and human-focused and the participants' ideas that are the motivation for the creative process, this obviously inevitably means that these topics do filter into the creative work that gets made as well. So I think that... Um, one thing that youth theatre leaders are not, um, nor should they be, is kind of a professional counsellor or a mental health worker. So um, I think that's a really interesting thing when we're talking about this, the theme that we're talking about today around how we safeguard our mental health when creating work around mental health. Um, I, feel, I feel like in relation to youth theatre and participatory arts work, that means that it's kind of a three-pronged um, safeguarding approach, if you like. It's around how we support the young artists and the young people that we're working with, how we support the artists who are working with the young people, and then how we support the audiences who see that work, particularly if it's stuff that is made by young people for other young people. So that's kind of an interesting space as well. So I often think about this as there are, I suppose, two approaches that we can take to, to doing this kind of safeguarding work within youth theatre work, and that's artistic and operational safeguarding. So obviously artistic safeguarding um, means that there can be creative methods that can be used dramaturgically to allow young people to have a platform to share their ideas and opinions and stories, but without making them vulnerable and also giving them a sense of anonymity so that the stories and that the feelings and opinions that are shared don't make them vulnerable either to their peers in the group or to the audience as well. And that's a kind of creative approach that many directors will take to how they share lines, how they uh, generate this material and how they kind of elicit um, experiences and um, opinions from young people about whatever it might be that they want to, to make about in that room. 
Um, and I think that also involves a kind of continual check-in process with the room in terms of, you said that you were happy to share this information. Are you still happy to share this information and kind of continuing that process as you go along? Because obviously people change and their minds change and that's absolutely fine. Or it might become deeper or more kind of rich or you know, more interrogatory of where they're, they're at. And that sort of feels like it's really important to keep checking back um, in that as well. Um, obviously dealing with um, young people's work, majority of the time it is autobiographical um, that they're creating. So it's about, I suppose, um, dealing with those autobiographical stories sensitively and collaboratively as a group. And one way that um, I'd always sort of dealt with it as a director and facilitator was always checking back with the original idea um, the original vision for the piece that we made, made um, that we were making as a group, always just kind of checking back in with that. With okay, does that story that we're telling right now does that still check back in? Well, how does that add value to the piece that we're making and the the story that we want to tell to the audience? And kind of using that as an editing tool as well with the young people felt like a really important process for that because they were taking ownership over how the stories were used and whether they were used at all, and that being an active choice. Um, also, one thing that often comes up in youth theatre is I call it performer's remorse um, in terms of the overshare, you know, the guilt that you might feel afterwards. And there's always just that fear, especially with young people, of young people feeling pressured to share stories or share their opinions on a certain thing and then afterwards feeling horrendous about that. So I suppose it's about creatively kind of finding ways to minimise that as much as possible and just ensuring young people that they know that they do not have to share these stories. This is not a space where they, they need to do that if they don't want to. So then just around, um, and also I suppose building in space at the end of every session for reflection and that kind of check-in time was really interesting, Paul and Tanzan, hearing you talk about the different methods that you were putting in for the audience to be able to kind of check in and reflect on that. And I think that's really important, not only for youth theatre audiences, but for young people themselves to have that um, chance to kind of check in and reflect at the end. Um, another um, thing in terms of operational safeguarding that we talk a lot about in youth theatre is around I suppose the aftercare and the through care that the young people can have externally from that creative process that they're going through. So a lot of youth theatres, or say, I say a lot, there's two, two youth theatres in Scotland have an incredible system in place, which is kind of a well-being partner. Um, and it'll be so interesting to speak to you about this, Rebecca, once I've heard your kind of chat a bit later, just around that idea of the well-being partner. And that is essentially a mental health organisation that partners up with a youth theatre to provide not only one-to-one -one support for the young people as they go through that creative process if there are things that come up that they want to talk about with a counsellor but they also provide training to the practitioners um, and the organisation that supports the practitioners as well so it's that kind of embedded way so that the the leaders also know how they can be facilitating this kind of space for the young people as well and I think that that's something that every theatre every participatory arts organisation should have um, alongside them is that kind of well-being partnership because then it just means that there's not that fear of you know, I don't want to go into this territory. I don't want to explore this because in terms of what you were saying, Juliet, about that relatability, that being something that an audience watches and goes, I see myself in this. I don't feel alone anymore. It feels really important that this is actually encouraged in terms of youth performance, that young audiences can see it as well and feel that they're not alone. And this is something that they're not dealing with by themselves. Um, but for me, the massive thing um, about this kind of area of work within the participatory art sector is about what is who's there for the practitioners, because obviously youth theatre leaders um, build these incredible creative processes for young people, which can be quite cathartic, which can be a really rich, valuable experience for them to go through and process a lot of this stuff, and then they have to take that home with them. 
a lot of the time, you know, there's that kind of sense of how do you then process the stuff that comes up with youth theatre practice, um, with youth theatre sessions. Um, and structurally at the moment, I don't, and this is maybe an argument for later, maybe this is a rant for a different day. Um, structurally, I don't think that we have systems in place to adequately support the well-being of participatory artists at the moment in terms of um, who, those who are holding space for others. Um, and I think that, you know, ideally we need to move towards systemic change where we can revolutionize the way that we work with practitioners who are working with other people so that there is that kind of, I don't, you know, that's my visual of it, you know, that there are people working on the ground with young people that are being supported by people that are being supported by people. Do you know what I mean? It's about that kind of building that culture of care in that, that kind of structural way feels really important and ensuring that health and wellbeing practices are embedded not just in the creative process, but organizationally as well. And Andrew's heard me rant about that before, so I won't do it now. Um, so I'll just quickly, I had other notes to make, but I won't um, go into that too much. Okay, I'll let um, other people speak as well. Um, but the final prong around that, I suppose, is the audiences I mean, in terms of keeping the audiences safe, as I said before, as especially if there are other young people seeing the work that might be kind of triggering to them or might be might kind of make them think about different things. Um, and it's just that thing of, you know, as I said before, young people going through this brilliantly facilitated kind of cathartic supported experience and then presenting something on stage, which might be quite challenging to an audience that hasn't had that same process. Mm. Um, and how we make sure that that feels like it's not just doing stuff to the audience, but in terms of facilitating and building that culture of care, there is that kind of mutual care and respect for the audience, the artists and the, um, the performers as well. And of course, you know, when we're thinking about keeping audiences safe, of course, we can put things like content warnings up, you know, we can do that kind of that thing, but also, you know, you never know, just like you don't know every day when you're walking down the street, um, whether or how something is going to have an impact on you. And actually, I think what you guys were talking about, Paul and Tamsin, about the different methods for allowing audiences to process things that they've just seen or engage in the material of what they've just seen feels much more important than putting something out to give people the fear that something might trigger them. Um, and then potentially blocking themselves off to being able to fully experience and fully see and fully engage with the content that they're seeing on stage. So I feel like um, a step for us in the youth theatre sector, or at least the participatory arts sector, is to think more creatively about how we provide that through care and the aftercare for audiences so that we allow them to feel things and don't shy away from that. But, you know, that there is other support available so that it doesn't feel like that's an unwieldy thing to do. Um, and also, I think this is a note for the youth theatre sector and was always one of my bugbears um, around working with young people is that, um, you know, I think that planning for audience response is really important as part of the creative process um, in terms of, um, you know, working with young people. I mean, in my experience, sometimes young people do need a reminder that their work will be seen by an audience if that's what the process is, if that's what it's being worked towards. Um, sometimes that can be part of the editing process as well as, you know, young people say, well, I want to see this, I want to see this, I'm going to get up and I'm going to be all controversial. And then you're like, remember your mum's going to be there? And they're like, oh, no, I don't want her to see that. So there's that kind of, that as part of the editing process can be really useful, but also just in terms of, um, yeah, a, a creative stimulus, if you like, of being able to say, okay, we're telling this story about mental health. How do we want the audience to feel? What do we want them to do? And how can we use the creative mechanisms that we've got, the tech, the the words that we're using, the music that we're choosing to kind of evoke some of that messaging in the audience as well. So using it in that kind of way to think about how they care for and provide that space for an audience to have a similar experience that they've had throughout that creative process. Um, 
I think I will shut up. I was, oh, that's right. I was just going to finish with a quick quote that I love um, from a young person about their participation in youth theatre. And it was just to say, um, youth theatre makes me feel important, picked me up when I was at my lowest and gave me the confidence to be where I am now and I wouldn't be the person I am today without it. So I just think it's that thing of reminding ourselves how important this work is and the strong impact that it can have and it can actually save people's lives. Um, so just to kind of throw that out there as the kind of banging the drum for participatory arts and the arts in general, but that's me. Brilliant. Thank you, Vicky. There's so much to think about there that I'd love to come back to if there it was time. I'd be making lots of notes, but I'm very conscious we, um, the hour is racing along and we haven't come to Rebecca yet. Um, Rebecca, um, uh, tell me about film in mind and, 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 and some of the kind of considerations of mental health in the film industry in, in particular, uh, what you're trying to do to help. Yeah, there's been some amazing things said already. So I think a lot of what I had prepared to say today, I might just chuck out the window and, and just respond to what people have said. But um, so just just a little introduction about me first is that I, I, um, I was a documentary producer for about 12 years before I retrained as a psychotherapist. And I've now been working as a therapist, um, specifically with filmmakers for about nearly four years now. Um, and it was it was an incredible experience to merge my um, all of my experiences producing films and and seeing my friends and colleagues produce films with then learning to become a therapist. And I think it, that really formed my practice um, for sure as a therapist, just firstly learning um, in the first few days of my training, how much attention was being given to my own self-care and the support structures that were being put around me as a therapist or that I needed to put around me as a therapist, but also how to care for my clients as well. And immediately my, I thought I was going to leave the documentary industry when I started my training. And immediately I was just like, oh my goodness, how can this apply to documentary makers? Because none of this exists in the industry at all. We don't even talk about, about safeguarding and about self-care and you know and about how to how to work with vulnerable people we just we don't discuss it um so that I just I couldn't leave essentially it was just no these two things need to come together and this is and this is what I'm going to do and it's been it's been uh, it's been quite a journey since then so I now work um I set up film in mind and I work as a therapist and also as a as a supervisor so I've taken the the sort of supervisory model that exists in the in the therapy world and, and applied that to filmmaking. So um, filmmakers don't just come to me for personal therapy, they also come to me with their professional work. Um, it's a little bit like what you were just asking about, Vicky, you know, what's what's there for the for the creators. Um, and that's and that's what that offering is, is is where can where can filmmakers come to to process um, their professional stuff. So to work through ethical dilemmas, to ask questions around, you know, I'm filming with this person and she's, she seems to, you know, she's displaying this, that and the other, how, you know, what does this mean? Um, how is this gonna affect my project? Is it safe to continue? All those sorts of questions that they might have around. And they're not armed with that knowledge because they're filmmakers, they're not therapists um, or working therapeutically. And the other thing I'm doing is advocating quite strongly for um, just acknowledgement within the industry that documentary makers specifically are not just creating art. They're also providing 
a healing pathway often either for themselves in their because a lot of filmmakers make personal work you know they're making documentaries about their own mental health challenges or about traumatic events that have happened in their lives or experiences or subject matter that's very close to their own experiences um, or people close to them or they're working with vulnerable people um, who are also you know they run the risk of filmmakers themselves run the risk of secondhand trauma or re-traumatizing people they're working with so it's, it's really complex and I think again historically within the industry we haven't created space for that just acknowledging that additional burden that that filmmakers carry when I say filmmakers I also mean producers editors cinematographers sound you know all of these roles that go into getting a film made anyone who comes into contact with that process can can be exposed you know to to these mental health challenges so uh, yeah a lot of the conversations are around recognizing that that's a risk and not saying it's too risky you shouldn't do it but saying this is this is the nature of the job and and what should we be doing as an industry to put in safeguarding practices to make sure that we're doing things in as safe and as healthy a way as possible. Um, so one of the things that come, has come out of that with me is a, a research project called Documentality. So we're in we're at the beginning of that at the moment. Um, where I'm running a series of focus groups and there'll be a survey coming out later in the year as well um, that's looking specifically at um, doing mental health research um, into the film, into the documentary practice. And then out of that, we'll be creating a sort of online um, support space for documentary makers. Um, so that's that's a really exciting thing that's coming out of it. And, you know, we're trying to get as many stakeholders as possible on board for that. And the idea is that it's community led. Um, it's a free resource that will be available and open, you know, for anyone to access um, eventually when it's when it's out there. And um, we still have some spaces, spaces left in our Scottish groups. If there's any documentary makers listening, um, you can you can look for that through the documentality website. Um, yeah, so I think I'm trying not to I'm trying not to um, to talk for too long because I'm aware of the time. But I had sort of prepared, you know, stuff around the specific mental health challenges for working with um, with vulnerable participants, the mental health challenges for for putting audiences for putting films out to to audiences and the sort of trigger trigger risks that are there and how you can mitigate those and then and obviously this um, specific nature of, of being a documentary maker in this space but I feel like a lot of that has has been said by by everyone and actually applies to the to the documentary world too so I don't really want to repeat what's already been said but Andrew maybe maybe there's a particular question that's come out of well yeah I, I did want to touch on something that actually Juliet raised in in, in the chat um, uh, earlier which is, is the word boundaries I think that's a really interesting word to be discussing here I mean, I mean when you are performing or when you are sharing stories or encouraging other people to tell mental health stories I think it feels like it's a very important thing to just set boundaries as 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 to yeah for various different ways. I I wonder if you could speak to that, and I could maybe bring in the rest of the the panel to 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 talk about that as well. Yeah, yeah. It's a, I mean it's a it's a it's a really important part of the of the creative process. I think, and again, not a part that's discussed in any great detail of how do we set boundaries and what's our responsibility as as creatives to set those boundaries. Um, I think filmmakers traditionally have been quite scared of of, um, of setting them because there's a fear that they'll they'll um, scare away 
the participants who have agreed to take part in the film. So it's almost like as little as possible is said about the process until everything, until they until the trust is developed. Mm. Um, and then you can start setting the boundaries. But actually, that's that's really the wrong way around to do it. I think the trust develops out of this really sort of firm structure that is created around the work so that then pe people can feel really safe and and those boundaries they're not just boundaries for um for participants in the work they're also boundaries you know from the from the filmmaker's perspective or the artist's perspective so they can be really simple things like how much time are you going to spend together you know can you can you actually put a time frame around this project when is a good time to be in touch do you accept calls at weekends or in the evenings or would you prefer only to be contacted in working hours? Um, fees, be really upfront about, about money. Money is a boundary. Um, subject matter, what can we discuss? What can we not discuss? That's a boundary. You know, it's, it's, um, there's, some of them are so tiny, you wouldn't even think of them as boundaries, but they're so important. And where can you film? You know, for some people filming in the home is, is, is where they feel the safest and for other people that can be really dangerous. Um, so it's all these sorts of parameters that need to be worked out and then and expectations as well. Um, two really important things, I think, are expectations. So what do you want that person to give you for the project? But also what are you trying to achieve with it? Those are your expectations. And then collaboration. What does your collaboration look like? Like how how. Um, collaborative do you want the process to be in terms of partnership are you do you have a really set idea of what you want to achieve and this is how you want to achieve it and you want that that person to sign up to it or do you want to figure it out with them you know do you want to do you want to work with them with their needs and and let them be part of that creative process and also in that distribution process as well because of course the creation of something is only one thing it's then how you distribute it is is an entirely new collaborative process um so yeah that's a sort of quick rundown i think of of boundaries um there are many 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 more thank you rebecca and, and paul and tamsin you were both nodding nodding your heads at quite a bit of that does that resonate with your experiences that you're becoming important to setting boundaries yeah i think um well it depends on the you know we'd say we work in different ways we've said but you know definitely when we work with people that through the nhs you know that idea of boundaries is is there the safeguarding but also it's not just about safeguarding it's about making people feel safe so we have a group agreement at the beginning that allows people you know and and we constantly reassure people as well as you do not have to share it's, you know, because there can almost be in a group that you get some very vocal people that want to share. Uh, and then that can put pressures on others that just want to listen. Um, and we let people know up front, we will never call on people. You know, we won't suddenly go to you and go, OK, what's your experience of this? It's, it's you know, and giving people time and you see people, you know, whether it's one session or three. You know, we've had people that start with their camera and mic off and maybe just introduce themselves through chat. But by the second or third session, I've got their cameras on, they're speaking, you know, and that's all about boundaries because they feel safe with us that we're not going to be put on the spot. And I think too often, if you look at well-being or, or mental health through um, a funded kind of arts perspective, there's a time limit, like we need to get through this material, whereas you can't do that with people. We like to have space and say, you know, share at your own pace, you know, and do it with confidence and support. Um, Tam, did you want to add anything on that? Yeah, um, as well, I think in terms of, you know, the, it, 
we call it a group agreement in the house setting, but it can be called multiple different things. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm muted. <laughs> I wasn't sure. Um, but uh, it's that idea that we cope, almost like we call it co-production and we co-produce um, it between ourselves as in the facilitators, but also with, with the people, the participants in the group. So these kind of things can um, almost, they change and adapt depending on who joins the group. Um, so that if there's anything people want to add into that. So I know you were talking, um about kind of um you know what kind of do not want to be talked at you know text at this time of night or called at this time and fees and all of this type of stuff it's like it gives a space for people to sort of bring up those kind of um fears and things that they they want to know in advance before they come into the sort of decide to, to share and by giving it you know by doing that in like a co-productive way it builds that element of trust as well and it is always at the beginning um, and that's that seems to be really important. Um, and then it gives that space to share and have that open dialogue and conversation as well throughout throughout all of the courses that we do. And, and even when we were working with the um, actors in the play, you know, we always had that kind of down reflective time and at the beginning or after we run a scene or, you know, we uh, it was that constant um checking in and allowing people to sort of have that space to share if saying you know I'm really feeling like this at the moment um, and there were moments where we'd say like let's cut out the banter like I can't deal with that today I'm just in this headspace we don't want that you know so it's building that mutual respect and trust amongst the team and by having that, that up front is, is, is definitely very very useful um, also in terms of what you do choose to share as a as an artist from my experience um, uh, we do, like we say, Paul and myself, we work a lot and we do share a lot of our mental health experiences through the NHS, but also through our own artwork, is that you've got your, what you're willing to share professionally and um, what you're willing to share personally. And then there's like the private and it's the private is the bit that always remains private. Um, and uh, because, you know, it's that idea that once something is out there, you can't put it back in the box, as it were. Um, and we always, um, when we're working with other artists, we we definitely like bring that out and just say, you know, what is it if, you know, you're always willing, you are comfortable sharing. Um, and also at any moment, if you, before you do decide to share it, you can always decide not to share it too. Um, we always make sure that they're aware of that as well. Thank you, Thames. I'm, I'm aware that we're past um, two o'clock, so I'll have to wrap up shortly. But I, I do want to come back to Juliet because you, you raised the, the, uh, the, the kind of idea about boundaries. Could you ask you to just um, talk a little bit about that and, and maybe reflect on, on what some of the other panelists have just said? Absolutely. Um, I'll try to keep it brief. Um, before, before June 2021, I didn't know what boundaries were, and I've been performing comedy about my mental health issues for um, over a decade um, and I actually ended up reading books about boundaries because I broke boundaries repeatedly in my personal life and in my professional life and um, I now know that there are six types of boundaries physical emotional sexual intellectual material and time some of the other wonderful speakers have already mentioned about material and time um, and emotional and intellectual um, there's also the physical and sexual and um, when it comes to social media and performance and practitioners, um, there's uh, there's a whole there's a, especially for the pandemic, there was so many boundaries being broken that I broke um, that I didn't realize um, that I was seeking to meet um, unmet needs from uh, from early years through audiences. 
um, through having, through wanting to be there for them through, you know, during the pandemic, I had people messaging me saying, disclosing some very disturbing um, experiences they had. And that um, had happened before the pandemic, but during the pandemic, it's, it really heightened. And um, before the pandemic, it had led me to work for many years with the charities that I, I'm closely aligned with. But during the pandemic, it was harder and harder to for everybody to maintain boundaries in a different way because our physical boundaries had changed, our um, emotional boundaries had changed. And it, I love what um, what Tamsin was saying there about um, about people who are, who are practitioners. Um, being aware of their um, of what they share their personal professional and then private it always stays private because once it's out there it's pandora's box right but um it takes a level of self-awareness that not everyone has and i say not everyone has thinking that i me pre last year i thought i'm in therapy i've been in therapy for so many years i know my boundaries I didn't know what boundaries were. The level of self-awareness that I had, I hadn't taken time out to really look at my motivations for why I was sharing what I was sharing on stage. And I'm so grateful that I had an incredible breakdown that made me, ha I had to look inside because I hurt someone I loved very, very badly last year um, and they left my life. And the thing that we don't know is, is with practitioners, uh, as well as individuals who come, is what other support they have, what support networks do they have, what other relationships um, are, are being impacted by, by what they're sharing on stage, um, or what they're not sharing on stage, what it the problem with with that self awareness is we can think that we are self aware, but it takes something terrible happenings to mean that we cannot live with that regret so that we have to look even deeper and that is a constant practice um and when you are faced with an industry that that needs you to keep going keep going keep going constantly in fight flight freeze or fawn of the trauma responses that we all do have and fawning is a great performative strategy to distance ourselves from the pain of trauma um being busy, being flight, uh, we are constantly pushing ourselves away. Um, when do we have the time to do that, that self-reflection, that deep work of actual self-awareness? Why am I motivated to do this? Why am I motivated to share this? Oversharing is a part of fawning as a trauma response. And a lot of artists have trauma from childhood that they perhaps are or are not aware of, that that is possibly the reason why they are seeking something from audiences that that were never met in childhood uh, they're seeking to meet childhood needs through audiences and audiences again through social media as well as performance it doesn't end with that it needs it, it's it's the wider practice that can't be policed twitter is not policed yet and uh, as are our other social medias we we are all still scrambling around in the dark trying to figure out the right ways of doing this to protect ourselves and to protect others whilst also wanting to continue the conversation it's a it's an interesting time it's a it's i would highly recommend reading the body keeps the score and uh create boundaries find peace as well if anyone's uh listening um and i think that creating art that my new show no brainer is uh, it we ex I explore the trauma response the uh, fight flight freeze or form the pandemic all with lots and lots of jokes in there, but with healthy boundaries. And I let the audience know, I'm not gonna tell you what it is that has, that kicked this off for me. 
um, I'm managing your expectations. And so far, people seem to be respectful of that, but we have to be the ones leading it. Much like organizations need to be led by the CEO saying, we're gonna invest in mental health training and mental health in the workplace training. You need to have the, the the, I think that um, it was uh, Tamsin um, and Paul who began with the kind of the, the confidence. You have to, there's somebody has to lead. And unfortunately with performers and practitioners, we are the ones leading. And sometimes we are the ones who are trying to heal at the same time. You said it earlier, Andrew, about art can be healing. Art can also be trauma bonding rather than trauma healing. And um, whose responsibility is it to, to mean that it's one or the other? Thank, thank you, Juliet. Um, so much to think about there, and I wish we could continue, but I'm, I'm conscious that some people need to leave. Um, uh, I'm just for maybe just one minute, not to put pressure on you, Rebecca, but I, I feel like it would be good to have kind of closing thoughts from the psychotherapist in, in, in the room. I mean, um, do, what, what do you make of what um, uh, uh, Juliet was saying there about that, that kind of thing of, of, of oversharing and, and um, yeah, and, and, and coming back to that idea of, of, of boundaries. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I think what she's saying there about having a space to reflect and process is, you know, that's the thing that can that can really help creatives to to learn how to put those boundaries in place and to know when when oversharing is oversharing and, and when it's appropriate. And you know, without that reflection space, how are you supposed to know where where do you find where do you allow yourself the time to actually interrogate your process? You know, I have a, a therapist are ethically kind of expected to go through a period of personal therapy and constant supervision and I do think that's a helpful model for for creatives as well if you're making this type of work not all creatives obviously but if you're making this type of work I think it's a really kind offering to yourself of you know what can I put in place on a regular basis that gives me time that is just for me in a supported environment that allows me to reflect um, and to just figure out what's motivating me what it's all about and I couldn't I couldn't function without it as a, as a therapist for sure so yeah I mean I, I could talk about it for quite a long time but um, I should put, pause it there. Rebecca thank you so much um, Tamsin and Paul um, uh, Juliet and Vicky thank you so much Thank you everybody for joining us today. And um, yeah, we'll be doing a, another Mental Health Arts Network discussion event um, live at the CCA in Glasgow um, on the 4th of May as part of the Mental Health Festival. Um, but until then, um, uh, yeah, thank you for joining us today. <laughs>